0: A bunch of people were over at our house and, um, true confessions here, I was getting a little weary of listening to big people talk about their problems. So I, uh, so I wandered upstairs and I found a bunch of kids engaged in a card game. It was the best kind of card game, one that was made up by a third grader. And, uh, and they couldn't keep track of all the rules. In fact, quite frankly, I don't think even the game's creator could keep track of all the rules. And I just stood back and watched and it was just hilarious. It was delightful. There was one moment that really struck me. There was a younger boy, he was, he was maybe five, and he had, a, he had a handful of face cards, <clears throat> and he looked at him and really exasperated, he said, I, I can't even remember who these people are. <laughs> and a very old, wise 10-year-old uh, sat down next to him and began to explain, just so graciously, this is the king, this is the jack, this is the joker. It was really, really sweet. The next day, after that occurred, I started working on this series. And when I got to Daniel chapter 11 and the confusion of all the royalty described in Daniel 11, I pictured my fourth grade friend saying, this is the king. So that's how I approached the structure of the chapter. Look look in the worship guide you got when you came in. Uh, Look inside that bulletin and you will see that in our notes, playing cards provide the headlines for Daniel 11. So before you just give up on this chapter and go fish, Let's try playing cards, all right? Let's try to see if we can separate and understand everything that's going on in this raucous chapter. All right, we're going to begin with four kings. Four kings right here. Turn to Daniel chapter 11. Now, Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, and let's read about the four kings. Now, I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Now, Quick context, in case you weren't with us a few days ago, this all began back in Daniel chapter 10 when an angel appeared to Daniel. Daniel was really upset at that moment. He was really pained by the prophecies that God had revealed about the dark, dark final days of the time of the Gentiles. The angel, by the way, had to fight. He had to battle his way against demonic forces that were trying to keep him from getting to Daniel. Now the angel has broken through to comfort Daniel and he shares more truth about things that are to come. Truth is the key word here. Look! Look at the uh, look at the slide here. The Hebrew term is amit, a really important word. It runs all through this passage. It's really critical. Uh, we translate amit as "true." By the way, your fancy Hebrew word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say amit. One, two, three. Amen. Amen. It means a firm and unchanging fact. When it's used in prophecy, as it is here, it means something that is certain to occur. Raise your hand if you've ever known a person who always kept every single thing they ever said to you. They never broke their word to you. Raise your hand if you have somebody like that in your life. Okay, a few of us do. My dad is like that for me. I, I am sure that at some point, Daddy probably made a promise that he didn't keep. He may have told me a lie at some point, but if so, I can't remember any. If, if my dad said something was going to happen, it happened. He, he is as humanly close to a MIT as I have ever known. The angel speaks for God here, and he says four kings are going to arise after Cyrus. Cyrus is the Persian emperor who was reigning when this speech was given. This is only the third year of Cyrus. He's just started, and and then the angel says, God says, this will happen. Look what God says will happen. There are going to be four kings. One, a first king who comes after Cyrus, a second king, a third king, and then a fourth king. And that fourth one is going to be really, really rich, and he's going to build a coalition that's going to go against Greece. Now, in the world of fake prophecy, like uh, with people who wanna believe in Nostradamus or stuff like that, you know? You expect that what you have to do when you have a prophecy like this, and and the history of it is behind where you and I live right now, you gotta kinda squint, and you gotta sorta stretch, and you gotta allegorize the history to get it to fit. Now, that may be true of fake prophecy, but you don't have to do any squinting to see that God spoke a mitt exactly on target. We can look back from where we are today. I know. It's amazing. We look back from today, and we can see exactly what happened. Right after Cyrus, there was a first king after him. Cambyses was his name. He he expanded the Persian Empire even further. Then came a guy who only lasted part of one year. His name was Galmata. Uh, He was a liar. That's why he's called pseudo Smerdis. Then Darius I, who was really really big guy and he expanded the empire even further and then the fourth king Xerxes the first who was really really rich he built a massive coalition against Greece by the way uh, Darius king number three Darius the actually tried to take Greece okay look look at the map of the Persian empire Ever since Cyrus the Great, the green is Cyrus the Great, the blue is what Cambyses added, the red is what Darius added. Ever since Cyrus the Great, the empire had been spreading and spreading and spreading, especially in the Greek parts of the world and all the way into Asia Minor. Well, Darius got an army together, and he went across into Europe, and he conquered Thrace and Macedonia, but he couldn't get into Hellas proper. Hellas is what the Greeks call their land. Uh, that's why it's called Hellenized when you're, when you're Greek. Um, he couldn't get in there. He tried, but they beat him back. A number of years later, Darius I came back with another army, one of the great amphibious assaults in human history. He managed to get an entire army onto the, uh, onto the beach uh, near Athens, but in an incredible turn, the Athenians destroyed his army at a place called Marathon. You may have heard of that. Uh, anybody want to guess how far Marathon is from Athens thank you, Pheidippides, you are right. So so that's Darius, he gets knocked back. Okay, Darius, his guys get on their ships, they flee back to Asia Minor. Darius dies before he can invade Greece again, but he's really, really mad at Greece because they keep beating him. His heir was, what was the fourth king's name? Xerxes, Xerxes took it a step further. He built a massive coalition. This coalition included (gasps) Phoenicians, Egyptians, Scythians, Medes, Cypriots, Syrians, uh, Jews, Indians, Ethiopians, And Greeks from Asia Minor, (sighs) right? And those are just the major peoples. He had people from all over that comprised his army. By the way, Xerxes' army was one of the largest the world has ever seen. Here's how rich he was. Remember how the text said he was going to be so wealthy? Here's how rich he was. As Xerxes traveled through Asia Minor on his way to Greece, uh, this happened. This is from Herodotus, the great uh, historian, the first great father of history. And he says this, listen. While Xerxes was traveling along this road, he discovered a plane tree that so impressed him with its beauty that he endowed it with golden ornaments all over and entrusted it to one of the immortals as its guardian. The immortals were his private guard, the select of his soldiers. Can this guy is so rich that he has, he has plenty of funds to be able to, to support this massive army And he can literally make money grow on trees. I mean, it's just astonishing. (laughs) Thus, the four kings, they come about, these four kings come about exactly the way God promised. Amen. All God's people said, amen. Which takes us to the one ace in this history. The one ace in this history. Read the next two verses, three and four. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he's established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled, because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. Every scholar I've ever read agrees that this is a perfect description of Alexander of Macedonia. Alexander the Great to you. Um, Twenty years old. Twenty years old. He inherits his father's little kingdom of Macedonia. From there, he spread Greek thought and language throughout the world, Hellenizing the the world. He conquered, as Scripture said, a vast realm indeed. His titles, by the way, uh, just to show you how far his realm was, his titles were King of Macedon, Hegemon of the Hellenic League, uh, Autocratar of Greece, Pharaoh of Egypt, King of Persia, Lord of Asia. And in the angel's memorable phrase to Daniel, Alexander did whatever he wanted. That means he was personally unstoppable. The only thing that stopped his spread was his death just before his 33rd birthday. His kingdom was divided as soon as it was established. When Alexander died, his generals got into this massive civil war that eventually carved the kingdom into four chunks, north, south, east, and west. Those generals who split up Alexander's kingdom were called the Diadochi. Uh, the diadochi they, they, they all matter, but, but for here... For Daniel chapter 11, Daniel 11 is only concerned with two of these kingdoms, the two that were on either side of Jerusalem and directly impact Jerusalem. The Seleucid kingdom of Syria to the north and the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt to the south. This is Israel in between. Uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are going to figure very large in the life of Israel leading up to the birth of Jesus. In our notes, we describe these... these uh, Ptolemies and Seleucids as a handful of Jackson queens all right these folks are as nasty as a soap opera they are a bunch of jacks verse 5 go to verse 5 <clears throat> the king of the south will grow powerful but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his this describes the founders of these two dynasties Ptolemy and Seleucus Ptolemy was the king of the south. He settled in and took over Egypt. Seleucus, by the way, Seleucus Soter, Seleucus the victor was his name, he, he, um, he managed to wrangle control of the richest and largest empire, which was Syria, up here. And, and, and zoom in on this. I want you to look up at the slide. Do you, do you see what's in the middle here? This is little Israel. You know, when Alexander, when the Diadochi finished settling out Alexander's empire, everybody finally had a nice, safe boundary except one country. Only one country didn't have any safety in their boundary. They kept being torn back and forth between Israel. These guys kept, the the Ptolemies and the Seleucids kept hitting them from the right and from the left. They just kept hitting them back and forth, ramming them, poor little Israel being rammed between them. Israel Israel was like the shepherd in the video that has gone viral. By the way, no shepherds were harmed in the making of this video. It just looks like it. The car frightens the sheep and the dog, so the sheep panic, and the shepherd is foolishly slow, and boof, he's down. He gets hit from the left. Oh, and again. And then, because they're still frightened, the ram, thinking he has to protect the herd, comes back and he hits him from the right. Don't watch, kids. This is, oh, it's awful. All right. That's. That's Israel. That's Israel between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, okay? Um, Read verse 6. Verse 6. Take a look at that. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal this agreement. She will not retain power, and her strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage. Sorry, she will not retain power. His strength will not endure. She will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. Antiochus, uh, th- this is precisely what happened. I told you Is a soap opera, right? This is precisely, this prediction 300 years before is precisely what happened with Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. Antiochus II is the son of Seleucus. He divorced his wife, Laodicea, uh, who was also his half-sister. Mm-hmm. He divorced her in order to marry Bernice, who was the daughter of, of Ptolemy II. Okay? And so, so he... He said, I'm going to divorce her, I'm going to marry her, we'll have an alliance this way. Well, Bernice wasn't happy enough with that, so she demanded that he send Laodicea all the way to the far uh, western edge of the empire to a town called Ephesus, of which you may have heard. And by the way, Bernice also said, I demand that none of her children are ever allowed to succeed to any powerful positions in the Seleucid Empire. And Ptolemy, I mean, uh, uh, Antiochus II agreed to this, and he thought, well, I don't want a real conflict about this, so I'm not going to send a herald. I'll go myself. So he went to Ephesus himself. Not his best move. In Ephesus, Antiochus was killed, almost certainly by his ex-wife. Now, Bernice had not made any friends in the Seleucid kingdom, Right and, and, and uh, Laodice knew this, so she got a cohort of soldiers together, they left Ephesus, traveled all the way to Antioch, and they killed Bernice, they killed uh, her infant son, they killed all of her extended family that had come up from Egypt to grieve with her the death of her husband, Antiochus II. It's exactly what the text says. Look, Laodice gets sent away, Antiochus, what did it say? It said, his strength will not endure, And then she will be given up together with her entourage, her father, and the ones who supported her during this time. That led to war. Verse 7. Go to verse 7. In the palace of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He'll take action against them and triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years, he will stay away from the king of the north, who will enter the kingdom of the sa- king of the south and then return to his own land. The saga continues with Ptolemy III and Seleucus II. Ptolemy III was Bernice's brother. He was more than a little unhappy about his sister's murder, so he invaded Syria. And he threw the new Seleucid king, uh, Seleucus II, he made him go running for his life. By the way, by the way, quick, just a quick side joke here. Seleucus II, the king of Syria, he had a nickname that I am certain he did not want. His nickname was Kalinokos Opogon, which means gloriously triumphant beard. But on all his coins, and they always did the coins exactly, you can see the guy could barely grow peach fuzz. I mean, he's got a (laughs) tiny little poor guy. So, so the fear of the beard, he, um, he, he took off, he got scared to death, uh, and he went running for his life all the way to Babylon when Ptolemy III invaded Syria. Ptolemy III burst into the Seleucid Palace in Syria. He captured a number of idols that had been taken there during the civil wars, taken away from Egypt. When Ptolemy III came back to Egypt with those idols, th- this amazing document was created. Make sure you look at this. This is incredible. A college of priests in Egypt put together this document, it's in three different languages, it's one of the things that helped us understand hieroglyphs, uh, it's called the Canopus Decree and it describes how Ptolemy III came back from invading Syria and brought their gods back to Egypt, by the way that won him so much goodwill when Seleucus inevitably invaded, as the text talked about, uh, the priests and the soldiers fought for Ptolemy and sent him off. Another quick fun side note, this uh, Canopus decree also, these priests said, there's a little addendum in the bottom of this, and it says, and by the way, one other thing, we've discovered what we think is the best way to, to measure time. Time should be measured in each year is 365 days, but you add a year every fourth year to make up for the one you lose. It never caught on. uh, Isn't that fascinating? Amazing. All right. Remember what territory all these armies are passing back through? It's Israel, right? Every time he invaded, he invaded. It's always Israel. And they're not just walking through. They're demanding food. They're demanding housing. They're demanding quartering of soldiers. You know, there are a number of times in Israel's uh, life during this period that they had to pay taxes to two empires at the same time. They were paying taxes to two. That's like living in New York or something. It's astonishing. (laughs) Sorry, New Yorkers, I'm just playing. All right, things would only get worse. Look at God's further prophecy, and all this has amit, it's come true. Verses 10 and 11 his sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance sweeping through like a flood and will again wage war as far as his fortresses infuriated. The king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemies. Stop there. Now, this section is verses 10 through 19. It describes the rule of some jacks named Ptolemy the fourth, Ptolemy fifth, and Antiochus third. To, to keep these straight, I, even if you're not a note-taker, I I highly recommend looking at the notes, and by the way, these three appear on the right side of your notes, Ptolemy Fourth, Ptolemy V, and Antiochus III. Bottom line, these guys began wars that would ravage Israeli lands for over 100 years. Seleucus so II, the one of the gloriously triumphant beard, he died, he fell off his horse, and he died. His second son took the name Antiochus III. He's a very significant person in history, and he had early success in the wars against Egypt. Verse, verse 10 describes that. But 217 BC, Antiochus III had invaded Egypt again and he was checked by Ptolemy IV of Egypt. You can see Ptolemy right here, young, tough-looking guy, Um, the Battle of Raphia. And that's exactly what God promised in verse 11. But this is very significant. This time, for the first time, when Antiochus III retreated uh, from Israel, when he he went back from Egypt back up to to, uh, Syrian lands, he was kind to the Jewish people. That had never happened. You know what he did? He lowered their taxes. That always makes people like you. And, and, and he gave a huge donation of money to the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, keep that in mind, all right? So that's what happened. Now read the next two verses, verse 12. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and will cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. After some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. Now, in terms of military history, verse 12 probably return, refers to Ptolemy IV's big mistake. You see, after his great victory at Raphia, Ptolemy IV became very arrogant. Just look at the difference on his coin. Do you see the difference from the guy I showed you earlier? He became very fat and arrogant, and lazy, and, and in military terms, he did the worst thing possible. After winning a victory, he didn't consolidate his, his win. He didn't, he didn't support his supply lines. He didn't consolidate his victory, and that's going to cost many thousands of lives when Antiochus inevitably does his counterattack. because after Ptolemy IV died, here's history and from us, Antiochus III levied a big army and again invaded Egypt. That's described in verse 13. Isn't it incredible how all this happened Exactly according to prophecy. Isn't that amazing? Of course, sometimes that can present a big problem. Have you ever noticed this? Occasionally, human beings who know about God's prophecies try to make them happen in our own strength. And that is exactly what goes on in verse 14. Look at verse 14. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Violent ones among your own people, Daniel, will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Here's what went down. A bunch of violent Jews, nuts, they marched off to fight against Egypt with Antiochus III. By the way, this, by this time, Antiochus III is called Antiochus the Great. Their goal is not because they really, I mean, they appreciate that Antiochus was nice to the Jews, but their main goal is they want to fulfill prophecy. They know these people, this is 300 years after Daniel's written, they know the book of Daniel, and they want to accelerate things so they can start Messiah's reign. That's their whole goal, to fulfill that vision. But the only thing those Jews achieved was death in battle. Now, we read about those nuts, and we think, thank goodness modern people aren't like that. We're not that silly. (laughs) Not so fast. There are many tragic examples of modern folks trying to make prophecy come about in our own strength. For example, there are modern teachers right now today. Some of them are our siblings in Christ whom we love. And they are trying to force end time events to come about. Their big idea is that since we know the Bible tells us exactly what the earth is going to be like when Jesus returns their idea is if we can just make everything line up we can force Jesus to return or as they like to put it we will establish his kingdom on earth. Um, I've read that story it's in verse 14 It, it fails every time but even though the Jews who tried to force God's vision died and they all died Antiochus still won. Read verse, verse 15. Go to verse 15. Then the king of the north will come, build up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select troops will not be able to resist. The king of the north, who comes against him, will do whatever he wants, and no one can oppose him. Let's stop there. <clears throat> no one could oppose him. And then, in the height of his pride, Antiochus III As was prophesied, he reversed his attitude. Remember, he was the only one that was ever nice to Israel. He reverses his attitude and he despoils Israel. Look at the last of verse 16. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. In Daniel, the beautiful land is always Israel with total destruction in his hand. This evil jack of spades most assuredly tore Israel up. Verse 17 predicts something that makes the war even even more bitter than ever. Uh, This time, here's what we're going to do. I want to describe what has happened in history from our perspective. It's history before we read the prophecy, what was ahead for Daniel. Um, Here's what we can look back and see. After consolidating all his gains, Antiochus III gave his daughter to Ptolemy V as as a wife. Okay, um, that was, by the way, that was not a move of peace. It was a very crafty bit of scheming worthy of Game of Thrones because the daughter, by the way, the daughter's name was Cleopatra I, becomes a, a well-known name. The daughter was not sent there to really be a bridge-building wife. She was supposed to undermine Ptolemy V's uh, kingdom from within and turn it over to Antiochus III. But when she got there, she, great love story, she actually fell in love with uh, her husband, And and she sided with her husband, not her father from Syria. Now, let's read how it was predicted 300 years earlier. Go to verse 17. He will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it. But she will not stand with him or support him. (laughs) Defeated in Egypt by his own daughter, Antiochus III defeated in Egypt by his own daughter. She will not stand with him or support him. Um, he, he turned to a classic Greek strategy, uh, which is piracy. And um, and he began to practice piracy against the coast of Egypt, against other Greeks, uh, captured a lot of Aegean islands. And as Antiochus III was raiding the whole world and messing up trade in the Mediterranean, a new power arose. A guy named Scipio, from a little bitty country nobody ever heard of, called Rome. And you may have heard of it. And, um, and Scipio, this, this leader of the Roman Republic, he was a consul, he, he met with Antiochus, sent a herald to Antiochus, and said, Hey, stop this raiding, this piracy. Everybody in the world's better off if there's free trade. We need free trade in the Mediterranean, so no more piracy. Antiochus said uh, <clears throat> to him, and uh, so Scipio got that's an exact quote, by the way. Um, <laughs> Scipio and his Roman legions managed to lure Antiochus into a great battle, one of the great battles in human history at Magnesia, which is not a bad medication. It's actually a place. <laughs> and, um, and the Seleucid army was destroyed. His pride was very, very wounded. So Antiochus III, now whipped by Rome, he plans a renewed expedition. He's going to go get those Romans and that Scipio guy, but he doesn't have any money left. So he breaks, oh my goodness, folks, he breaks all pagan religious rules, and he goes to a temple. We don't know which one, but it was probably this one, the temple at Hatra, and it was a temple fortress, right? And Antiochus III broke into that temple fortress to steal the temple treasury. That was, that was not allowed ever. By the way, it, you want to see how things still come around. This is, a, this is 2010. Uh, that's a U.S. soldier from the 101st Airborne, and uh, he is guarding that same temple of Hatra against looters Um, and they had and did have permission to shoot, to kill from people who were trying to loot. That's important to note because you know what happened to Antiochus III when he tried to break into that temple? They killed him. The soldier priests who were there and a mob of citizens who were horrified at what he was doing rose up and killed him. Now, that's what we read in history books. Here's how it was prophesied by Daniel 300 years before it happened. Verse 18, then he will turn his attention to the coasts and islands, the piracy, and capture many. But a commander will put an end to his taunting. That's Scipio from from Rome. Instead, he, the commander, will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. That takes us to our last Jack, Seleucus IV. He's described in verse 20. Look at verse 20. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he'll be broken, though not in anger or in battle. Seleucus so IV took the throne, and he was forced to pay, because of his dad's agreement with, uh, uh, with Rome, he was forced to pay a 1,000 talents a year in tax, uh, in reparations. The Attic talent was worth about $15,000 of today's money, so he was having to pay $15 million a year. He didn't have that money, so he was forced, he felt, to raise taxes. Um, he was poisoned by his secretary of the treasury as part of a coup that appears to have been founded by angry taxpayers. Now, I know what you are thinking. In your exasperated, card-playing, kindergartner voice, you're looking at all this and saying, Pastor Wayne, none of these has anything to do with my life. Oh, oh, my fellow kindergartners, please listen. Our own soap opera lives aren't so very different, and we can learn, we can learn from these examples. I'm just going to give you four quick lessons, just four ones from this prophecy and history we've looked at. You're going to have days of success. You will. Don't gloat. Don't get fat and sassy. Don't break your oaths, Ptolemy. Consolidate your victories. You are going to face the temptation to go into debt, to raid the temple treasury, to stop giving to God because you've got some big, great enterprise, some huge investment. Do not go beyond what Scripture says about money. Do not go beyond what Scripture says about debt. Speculation is poisonous. Prepare yourself, right? Here's one thing you surely learn from this. When people are frightened, they're going to run over view from the left and from the right, just like they did Israel. This is an election year. You're going to see this running over from the left and the right. And remember, what's God going to do to the people who mistreat Israel? Biblical promise, what's He going to do? He will punish them. By the way, speaking of mistreating Israel, let's meet our first joker. Our first joker in the deck the next section predicts one of the nastiest men ever born, Antiochus IV. By the way, when I say his name, you should boo and hiss. Antiochus IV. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Read verse 21. Start at verse 21. In his place, a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They will be broken as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. Vile and crafty Antiochus IV gains the Syrian throne. Now, Antiochus was a peaceful hostage in Rome. I know this sounds weird to us, but in the ancient world, the classical world, you could settle disputes sometimes by sending members of different families uh, to live in the other country. Sort of an exchange system. So he was in Rome, uh, living there as part of the arrangement between his father's loss, Antiochus III was his dad, and, uh, and then he got word that his brother, Seleucus, uh, was killed, uh, poisoned. And so he asked for permission, and he left Rome, and he went back, and here's what he said. He said, I'm only going back to Syria to, to be a regent and take care of my poor infant nephew, who is the heir to the throne. Oh, he took care of him all right. He killed him. As soon as he was crowned, he called himself Antiochus IV. And by the way, he gave himself a nickname. Not Glorious Beard this time, no, no. Antiochus called himself Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. What a joke. He is thus, he is thus the great type of the Antichrist who is to come. Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Judea. Look at your text. Uh, Somewhat shockingly, they helped him. Uh, He deposed uh, Onias III. Onias III was the rightful priest of God's covenant. That's foretold in verse 22. But the little nation of Israel still made a deal with him. I don't know. They may have been scared. They may have been deceived or grateful, whatever. But the Jews allied with him just as verse 23 said they would. Verse 24 also came about. Amen. Antiochus IV rewarded those who helped him. By redistributing wealth. That's right. Antiochus IV is the world's first communist dictator. He is. Do you remember when Hugo Chavez took over uh, Venezuela in the late 20th century? Hugo Chavez, one of the first things he did was he nationalized all the industries of Venezuela. That's a really nice way to say he stole He took everything that companies had invested in and people had built livelihoods around and he made all that part of the government and then he distributed the money that came from that to his cronies, otherwise known as the people, right? He lavished wealth on the people, but only for a time. Because what verse 24 describes always happens in communism. Eventually, the leader runs out of other people's money. It can only last for a time. You know, this weird agreement that Israel makes with Antiochus IV, the communists, it's a prototype of what... Are anybody here old enough to remember the Cold War? Um, there was some... Okay, good for you, you poor things. Um, there was something during the Cold War we called Ostpolitik. Ostpolitik was, um, was a, a German word for, um, for cowering or making appeasement to a big communist bully in hopes that they might be nicer to you as a result. It doesn't work. It didn't work for Judah. It didn't work for the churches behind the Iron Curtain who did that. It didn't work in Venezuela. It's not working in today's China. Look up here. This is Cardinal Joseph Zen, a remarkable man. He's one of 223 cardinals who lead the Roman Catholic Church. Um, not long ago, your country flew Cardinal Zen to Washington, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi presented him with the Chinese Democracy Champion Prize. I want you to listen to some of his comments that he made during that ceremony and later at a church service, and I want you to think about Israel, okay? He's going to talk about China, and that's fine, but I want you to think about Israel and their folly in trying to placate Antiochus IV. Here's what Cardinal Zen says. The Holy See, that's the Vatican in Rome, says nothing while the Catholic Church in China is being murdered. Pretty inflammatory words, right? A reporter then asked him a question about, well, hey, wait, can't you see some compromise? Look at what he said compromise you can never compromise with a totalitarian regime because they want everything would you have encouraged saint joseph to negotiate with herod later at the church service he said this why is the 2018 agreement between beijing and rome kept secret From everyone, even, and here he patted his chest, even the cardinals of the church. It's like the 1933 Concordat that Germany negotiated with the Vatican after Hitler became chancellor. The Nazis violated that almost as soon as it was signed, and China under Xi Jinping has only increased persecution since that deal was struck, close quote. Okay, with that in mind, turn back to our joker, Antiochus Epiphanes, verses 25 through 28. With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings, whose hearts are bent on evil, will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for still the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Antiochus IV attacks Egypt, and his Seleucid army succeeds, mainly because there was some good fifth column work he had going on against the Egyptians. Ptolemy is forced to come to the bargaining table. By the way, look at verse 27. This is one of my favorite descriptions of endless peace talks. Brilliantly describes the doublespeak of worthless negotiations among people bent on evil. Speaking of evil, Antiochus again ravaged Israel on his way north, just the way verse 28 said he would. Before too long, he attempts to invade Egypt again. Look at verse 29. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Katim will come against him, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. <laughs> this time Ptolemy's ready. He goes to Cyprus, or he sends people to Cyprus, and there, a bunch of Greeks uh, put together massive triremes, which were the super weapon of the day, and they come to his defense, and uh, these things, which were very intimidating, they scare Antiochus, and so he withdraws north. Poor Israel, Now they're going to get the fruit of what it means to appease an evil dictator. Look at the rest of verse 30. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Stop there. Oh, this is one of the worst moments in Hebrew history. Antiochus terrorized Jerusalem. He gave favors to renegade Jews who were willing to throw away Moses' covenant, and he, com- he completely rededicated the Jerusalem temple. You know what he did? First thing he did was stop regular temple worship. And then, oh, then, knowing Moses' laws about sacrifice, Antiochus IV puts a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem and slaughters it and spreads the blood. Installing himself as the one who should be worshipped through that altar. Horrible. But Antiochus, Antiochus did not count on God's wild card. (laughs) He did not count on God's wild card. Verse 32, pick it up there. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they'll be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall, so they may be refined, purified, and and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. This foretells the great Maccabean revolt. Let me tell you all about it. I don't have time. I can't. Um, You can read more about it on your own, all right? Let me do this. Let me give you a summary that's written by my awesome old teacher, uh, Dr. Pentecost. Dwight Pentecost uh, summarizes it this way. The Jews who refused to submit to Antiochus' false religious system were persecuted and martyred for their faith. By the way, the word fall in verses 33 and 34 you read, it's literally kesal, stumble. It refers to suffering on the part of many, death for some. This has in view the rise of the Maccabean Revolt. 166 BC, Matthias, a priest, refused to submit to his false religious system. He and his sons fled from Jerusalem to the mountains and began the Maccabean Revolt. At first, only a few Jews joined them, but as their movement became more popular, many joined them, some out of sincerity, others from false motives. The suffering the faithful endured served to refine and purify them. And he says this at the end. By the way, I love, always have loved, Reuben's amazing painting of the Maccabean victory. This time of persecution was of short duration. It had previously been revealed to Daniel that the temple would be desecrated for 1,150 days. That's in Daniel chapter 8. Here Daniel was assured this persecution would run its course and then be lifted, for its end will still come at the appointed time. Close quote. All right, so I'm so proud of you guys. You've stayed with me learning about four kings, an ace, queens, jacks, a joker, and a wild card. The text closes with our final card, our second joker, the Antichrist verse 36. Then the king, then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the God desired by women, or for any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his fathers did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many, distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end... The king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries, sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. What land is that, everybody? Israel, Israel, that's right. And many will fall, but these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries, and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites will also be in submission. But reports from the east and the north will terrify him and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many he will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain that's Mount Zion in Jerusalem but he will meet his end with no one to help him now some will say that this is more data on Antiochus IV, our, our first joker but that doesn't work You see, in Daniel, the term then always indicates a new period. Then is a new period. Besides, everything in this whole text has been line for line, amit, right, fulfilled in history. Antiochus never fulfilled these verses, not even close to fulfilling these verses. Remember, emit demands exact fulfillment, not fake news that is mostly true. These verses are giving information about another person whom other scriptures call the Antichrist. He's the only one who perfectly matches this. Antiochus, he's just just a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. We already did an entire sermon on Antichrist in this series. There's no need to to drill down here. Um, Since no one summarizes this better than Dr. Pete, let's let him have the last word. Dr. Pentecost puts it this way. Antiochus was a foreshadowing of a king who will come. You can see Daniel 8. But the two are not the same. From where we stand, one is past and the other is future. The, the coming king, who is the little horde of Daniel 7, the ruler of Daniel 9, he's going to be the final ruler in the Roman world. His rise to prominence by satanic powers described in Revelation 13, where he's called a beast. According to John in Revelation 17, he'll gain authority, not by military conquest, but by consent of the ten kings who submit to him. Starting with Daniel 11.36, the prophecy moves from the near to Daniel to the far. The events recorded in 36 through 45 will occur in the final seven years of the 77s, Daniel 9. All right, so think all this through, and three applications come to mind. First, fear not. I know know life can be scary. What Daniel saw in the future, like what God shows us about the future, can be confusing and terrifying. It sometimes feels like we face a stacked deck, but we must remember the way the story ends. After after all the evil that he performed, you know what what Antichrist does? He makes this great big show, settles himself west of the Jordan between between Mount Zion and the sea, and there the sun goes down on him. Just as verse 45 explains, he meets the end that God has planned for him with no aid at all, so don't be afraid. No matter how scary the story gets, the end is beautiful. All God's people said... You know, sometimes when I'm reading a great book aloud to our family, we read books aloud all the time, I'll, I'll get to a part um, where the story starts to get really tense. And, and, and we've, we're invested in these characters, I love these characters, right? And the story's getting really tense. And if I don't know the author, I'm not sure what he or she is gonna do with the story. They may end it like a 70s movie, you know? You, 70s movies always were full of angst and sadness, and they ended in darkness, and the heroes got shot. It was horrible. Anyway, um, it, it, look it up. Anyway, just terrible sad. So, so I'm afraid to continue, because I don't want to read the death of these people. I really like them, right? So being a coward, I give the book to my wife. <laughs> True story. And Jana then will read the rest of the book. And she then tells me, if it ends the way the Bible does, the way real life does, where everything works out in the end, or if it ends poorly. If she gives me a thumbs down, I throw the thing away. <laughs> Stupid book. If he gives me a thumbs up, then we get the whole family back together and we read the rest of it, all right? Let Daniel fill Jana's role for you. Listen, Listen to his angelic report. The bad guys lose. We have seen the end of the story. God's people win. Can I get a hallelujah? Secondly, please remember the reason God gives us prophecy. He said it in the text. is to shape us, to, to purify us. Let this prophecy purify you. Our, our whole annual vision this year is that no stone remains unturned, right? We're committing to let Scripture mold us and shape us and purify us. Well, nothing promotes purity like the perusal of prophecy. Do you, you want to say that three times fast again? You want to do it? Okay, three times fast, all together. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. Very good. All right, John describes the return of the true Christ, the very end of the appointed time. Chapter three of his first epistle, verse three, John says this, and all who have this eager expectation, not Antichrist, the true Christ who will return, they keep themselves what, everybody? Pure, just as he is pure. That's why we study prophecy when it arises in a book like Daniel and we don't just gloss over it. It purifies up. We we live differently knowing that Jesus has fulfilled all of these things through history. Prophecy becomes history. And we know that the events that he has promised that will happen could happen at any moment. Like a thief in the night. Life changes when we least expect it. So we need to live our lives in light of eternity. Third, let's not forget why God lays history out with such a long view. It's because he loves people. Undeserving people, like all of us, are so loved by God that God wants us to see his plan, so we'll turn to him. And his plan allows time for as many as possible to escape the doom of these foolish, warring, worldly kingdoms, and instead find life with God. Read with me, Second Peter chapter three, you take the underlined text. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Come to repentance. Change your mind about Messiah Jesus. He's already fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, and he's going to complete all the rest. As he foretold, he died on the cross to make atonement for sin. Everyone who trusts him is buried with him and resurrected to do eternal life with him. Trust him. Receive eternal life right now while we pray. Let's pray. Father, I pray. For anyone who is studying with us that does not know Jesus as Savior, that they will turn to you right now. Friend, listen, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is fully God and fully human. Believe in him. He died for you. If you trust in him, your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west because it's paid by him, the only one who can pay it and you are resurrected with him to eternal life. At the appointed time, what is prophesied will happen, and the end will come. Trust Jesus now while there's time. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand, please. Everybody else is praying. Good for you. Amen. Lord, I pray for these believers in Jesus, new and old, that we will be purified by your prophecy. In Jesus' name, amen.